You are listening to the Ingenious Podcast, where God's word is shared to build undisputed champions and mighty redeemers. This message is brought to you by the Ingenious Network. Enjoy the message. Dr. George Wilfred Arthur. and just glorify Jesus. Just open your mouth and glorify Jesus. Thank you. Wonderful Jesus. Our God when it's unto you. Thank you. Thank you. Our God when it's unto you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Our God when it's unto you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. amongst us and tonight our hearts are open to receive from you thank you that you are more than willing to engrace us marvelously you are more than willing you are more than willing can every eye be closed lift up your hands I want you to prepare your heart for those words prepare your heart prepare your heart just prepare your heart you have taught your mind. You have taught your mind. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. And tonight, we drink from the eternal books. Your word is alive. We are never the same. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Holy Ghost, for brooding over us. Thank you for the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. We are never the same. We are ever blessed. In Jesus' name, the Son of God. Hallelujah. Can you please be seated? Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Can you welcome your neighbor? Just say something to your neighbor. Yeah. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Praise God. So we are glad to participate in this conference. We came all the way from Accra. All the way from Accra. And uh, it's our joy to be with you. Hallelujah. I came with Pastor Michael, Prophet Juma, Dr. Nina. Hallelujah. Praise God. So we came from Accra and uh, our sister is also here with us. Sister Lodina is also here with us. Hallelujah. And uh, it's good to see all of you. Uh, man of God, thank you for bringing me. It's good to meet you. 
your beautiful wife, and also your mom and your in-law. Hallelujah. All the family, the family, you're all here. And uh, we know that uh, God has something wonderful for us. Hallelujah. Man of God, thank you for the worship. We're blessed. Hallelujah. And I believe that the past two days, you've been blessed. And uh, I came to continue with what the man of God began. And I trust that the word of God will sink deeply into our hearts. Hallelujah. Let me ask you, are you ready for God's word? One more time, are you ready for God's word? The last time, are you ready? Hallelujah. All right. So, we are talking about expectation, the lost expectation for the redeemed. Jesus has an expectation for his church. What is Jesus expecting from his people, the people he redeemed, his church, before he comes? Especially in these modern times and now that we are approaching his coming, the signs are all evident that the Lord is coming. What is he expecting from his church? Hallelujah. So basically that's what I'm talking about. What the Lord is expecting from us. Because he's coming. He's coming soon. He's coming. So I have a few points for us to go through. A few points for us to see what really is the Lord expecting from you. From his body. From his church. Once we know it, we, we, we will be able to align up our lives to his expectation. Because we live for him. Life is all about Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. All right, turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Now, the first thing I want to talk about, what is Jesus expecting from you? Now that we know he's coming, he's coming. In fact, the Bible says he'll come at an hour, an hour which men don't even expect that he's coming. Just suddenly, he's coming. He's coming as a thief in the night. So what is his expectation of us? The first one is that he's expecting his church to mature in love. He's expecting his church to mature in love. That's the first thing. He's expecting his church to mature in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gives some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Till we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Verse 15 says, but speaking the truth in love will grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Hallelujah. Now, this is very wonderful. Look at it carefully. 
why do we have pastors amongst us? Why do we have men of God? Why do we have Bible teachers? Why do we have prophets? Why do we have evangelists? Why do we have all these fivefold ministries among us? The reason God put the fivefold ministry in the church is for one purpose: is to build the individual members of the church, is to build all the believers. And what is the goal? Jesus has a goal. The reason he gave ministers and pastors to edify the church or to build a church or to raise the people, is, it, there's a goal for it. And the goal for it is what we see in verse 13. In fact, verse 13 is the goal of Christ. The reason we are doing the ministry is to come to verse 13. When we have arrived at verse 13, Christ will be happy because that's his vision. By the time the church enters, enters into verse 13, Christ can come. Hallelujah. Christ can come. So the reason for all that we are doing is verse 13. Till we all, not some of us, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God and unto a perfect man and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is it. This is the blueprint for ministry. This is the goal for ministry. This is Christ's expectation. He says, his goal is that all of us will come in the unity of the faith. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean for the whole church to come to the unity of the faith? We come in the unity of the faith. What does it mean? The unity of the faith, as we see in verse 13, he wants all the whole church all of us to come in the unity of the faith. To come in the unity of the faith. The word unity here in the Greek actually is oneness. We have to come. We have to come onto the oneness of the faith. Oneness of the faith. What does it mean to come to the oneness of the faith? Do you realize that there is so much division in the church? There is so much division in the church. We have different denominations. Too many different denominations. Apostle Techi, God bless you. You are most welcome. <laughs> we, we have different denominations and we have so many what we call divisive doctrines in the church. So much that when Jesus says that the goal for, is for us to come to the unity of the faith, we are wondering how that will be accomplished. We are wondering how. But this is what he's looking for before he comes. But the churches are divided. So much division in doctrine, too much division in practices, too many divisions. But what is the unity of the faith? Can you say after me? The unity of the faith. Or we call it oneness. The word is not unity, actually. The Greek is henotis. It's oneness of the faith. Oneness of the faith. Now, when you hear the word the faith, the faith, there is the objective faith and the subjective faith. Objective faith and subjective faith. When the Bible says we all come to the unity of the faith, the Bible is not talking about the faith you have for miracles. You see, maybe you are believing God for something. You are believing God for some financial breakthrough. Or you are believing God for a child. Or you are believing God for, for a kind of promotion. You need faith to believe God. Is that not so? 
Yeah, that is not the faith the Bible is talking about here. Using your faith to believe God for miracles and for all these things is, is the subjective faith. It's a subjective faith. But that's not the faith Ephesians 4.13 is talking about. He wants the whole church to come to the unity of the faith. The oneness of the faith. Now, the faith here, most of the times, when the Bible says faith, in the Greek, when there is a definite article, the faith, the faith, he's talking about the objective faith. What is objective faith? The objective faith has to do with our belief. It has to do with what the church believes in. The object of our belief or the content of our believing. Now, what did you hear to be saved? What did you hear to be saved? Before you were saved, there's something you heard. What did you hear? You heard about a person and the work he did. Is that not so? You heard about Christ and you heard about his work. The fact that he died for you and he was raised. So, the content of what we believed, which is Christ and his work, is what is called the faith. The faith. Christ is the object of our faith. So, all our faith anchors on Jesus and what he did. It's called objective faith. So, the Bible says that all the whole church will come, will come in the unity of the faith. What it means is that, you know what is going to happen? Christ and his redemptive work is going to be the focus of the church before he comes. The focus of the church will be Christ and his work. Christ and his redemptive work. He wants all of us to come to that acknowledgement. But if you look at it carefully, it's a full statement. Till we come, till, till we all come, can you imagine? We are not there yet. So all the churches, whether Pentecost or Assemblies of God or Apostolic, till we all come in the unity of the faith. Many churches are divided by different doctrines. But ultimately, you see, God wants Christ to be the center. Christ to be the center of the churches. Christ and his work to be the focus. This is what is going to bind the church together. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. It's one statement. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And the knowledge of the Son of God. And the knowledge of the Son of God. And the knowledge. The word knowledge here is epignosis in the Greek. You can read it. And the acknowledgement of the Son of God. The acknowledgement of the Son of God. Epignosis is the full knowledge of the Son of God. The complete knowledge of the Son of God. The precise knowledge of the Son of God. The exact knowledge of the Son of God. Hallelujah. So it's all about Jesus. So what's going to happen is that we'll come to the full revelation of who he is. Now when we say epignosis, it's not just knowledge. The knowledge in the Greek. It's not someone knowing something. But the person knowing something and relating with what he knows. Praise God. You know, someone can say, a doctor can tell you that smoking is not good for, for your health. But you go out and the doctor is smoking. So the knowledge does not reconcile with what he's doing. He says smoking is bad for your health. Yet you see him smoking. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a misnomer, you understand? So this knowledge is, is the kind of knowledge, it's not what you know. 
is knowing something and having a relationship with, with what you know. That means there's a practical expression with what you know. That's the knowledge the Bible's talking about here. So the whole church will come to the knowledge, to, to the precise knowledge of who Jesus is. The exact knowledge of who Jesus is. The accurate knowledge, the complete knowledge of who Jesus is. And apart from that, we are going to experience him. Hallelujah. Praise God. We are going to experience him. So, his goal for his church before he comes is that we all come in the unity of the faith. One goal, Christ and his work become our focus. And aside from that, then we begin to come to his precise knowledge. Because scripture is about him. He becomes the focus, not any other person. The focus. The Bible says, looking unto Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith. Now, the Greek says, looking away unto Jesus. So, we look away from everything. We look away from men. We look away from distractions. We look away from the economy. We look away from so many things unto Jesus. When the church comes to acknowledge Jesus and his work, that's it. That's it. So this is one of the places God wants us to come. Praise God. But it's a whole sentence, so let me finish. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Are you there? This is Ephesians 4.13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unto a perfect man and unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Hallelujah. Now, look at this verse well. You see the word unto. How many times do you see the word unto? Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Comma. Unto a perfect man. Comma. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Please, are you here or you are going home? All right. Now, there are three major thoughts in this verse. Okay. Three major thoughts in this verse. He says that, see, we all come, number one, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what I've explained. Number one. Then, unto a perfect man. Then, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These are heavy. The words are very heavy. But you see, in the original language, it's in a position. When we say something is in a position, you know what it means. It means, what it means is that the first statement is the same as the second, and the second is the same as the third. That's a position. What it means is that by the time the church, the whole church, all of us, come to the unity of the faith, we have come to a perfect man. The word perfect actually means matured. The church will be matured. <laughs> so the words are the same in a position. We have three statements there, but they are all the same. So by the time the church comes to the unity of the faith, as I explained, the church will come to the perfect man. That is the matured man. The church will be matured. And by the time the church is matured, the last statement says, the church will come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Praise God. Now understand this. You need to understand this statement. The church must come to the measure, say after me, say the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean? We are talking about his expectation for his church before he comes. Now that he's coming, what he's expecting the church? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Praise God. I said praise God. Say after me, the measure 
of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All right. Pastor Michael, come. Let, let me use you for illustration so that people will get it. What is the fullness of Christ? The church must come to what is called the measure of this teacher of the fullness of Christ. See the fullness of Christ. Now, what is the fullness of Christ? Now, the fullness of Christ is the body of Christ. See the body of Christ. Everyone can, you're welcome. And your wife, you're welcome. Yeah. The, the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ is the body of Christ. We, we find that, that in Ephesians 1, verse 23, 22 and 23. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the body of Christ is the fullness of Christ. For instance, look at this beautiful handsome man here. Okay. Look at his head. Imagine his head without his body. Can you imagine that? I- imagine his head without, without his body. It's, it's. Now, his body is the fullness of his head. Without his body, his head has no fullness. You see? This is the head. This is, these are scriptural languages. This is the head. So his body completes him. Now, Christ is the head. The church is his body. Hallelujah. Now, he calls his body his fullness. His fullness. He calls his body his fullness. Now, look at the statement. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, this, this expression, this statement is telling us that the fullness of Christ is the body of Christ. But he's saying that the fullness has a measure. No, sorry. The fullness has a stature. And the stature has a measure. The fullness has a stature. And a stature. Now, look at, look at this man's body. This is, this is the fullness of this man. This is his fullness. I've explained that his, the fullness is the body. But the body has a stature. This is his stature. The stature is a size. You know, this, this man is bigger than me. You know that. So, we have different... This is his stature. This is my stature. So this, this is the stature. But the stature also has a measure. So the measure of the stature of this man, probably, when we say stature, we're talking about the size and the height. You see, the size and the height is the stature. But there's a measure of his stature. The measure... All right, let's say this man is five feet nine inches. Yeah. All right. Maybe let's say he's five feet nine inches. Okay. So this is his fullness. But the fullness has a stature. Of course, the stature is his size. But the size also has a measure. The measure of his stature is five feet nine inches. Please, are you following? We are talking about the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay. Let's, Let's say this is his stature. This is the measure of his teacher. There's something Jesus has in his mind. Please, where's your son, Anthony? Anthony, can you come? I need you for an example.
Yes, he's running. Yes. Anthony, come. Okay, Jesus wants to use you. Man of God, do you know his feet? Two feet. How many inches? Two feet, three inches. Look at this. Now, look at this man here. Look at this man here. All right. Now. All right. Good boy. Now, look at this man. Anthony, he has a body. Is that not so? That means he has fullness. And he has a stature. His body, he has the stature of his body. But the measure of that stature, the measure of the stature of his body is two feet, two inches. But this man too has a body. But the measure of his stature is five feet, nine inches. All right. Assuming this is the state of the church. This is the state of the church. Let's say the state of the church or the growth of the church in the eyes of God is two feet, two inches. But before Jesus come, the Lord has set a mark. And the mark is that the church should go to a certain measure of a certain stature which belongs to Christ, which God is expecting the church to come to. So, if what God is looking for before his son Jesus returned, the measure of the stature is he's looking for five feet nine inches. And the church presently is two feet two inches. Now look at the difference. God has set that mark and the church must get into it. Then Christ will come. Hallelujah. That this is the reason for the ministries we have. He says he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Why? Till we all come to this place. Till we all, not, not till Pentecost church, not till apostolic church, not till ICGC, till we all, till we all come to this teacher. So if the church is like this, meanwhile, all that God is seeing is the church is this and must be in this immaturity. But the church is like this. Okay, so now that the church is like this, and now that Christ is coming, how can the church mature to this place? What will yield to the growth of the church so that the church will not come to the measure of this teacher? That is what we see in verse 15. Now verse 14 says that we, that, that we henceforth be no more children. That we, we henceforth be no more children. Paul was not a child, but as long as there are many children, he concluded himself that we henceforth be no more children. <laughs> Tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Verse 15 says, but speaking the truth in love. The Greek says, holding the truth in love will grow up into him. <laughs> you see, it's... The truth in love will grow up into him in all things, 
which is the head, even Christ. He's saying that the church is like this, it must be this. Now look at this head. If we put this head on this body, too, it's too much. It's too much. <laughs> yeah, the head, the head of Christ is big, like this man's head. Forgive me, forgive me. Now, <laughs> but, but look at this body, if this is a church. No, 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 no. It cannot carry the weight. So he wants the church to grow to this stature. And the means of the growth is in love. It's in love. <laughs> it's in love. It's in love. Because in verse 16, now verse 15 speaks of love. Verse 16 also speaks of love. He speaks of the body edifying or building up itself in love. So the whole thing has to do with because in Christianity, all that we are learning is to get us to walk in love, actually. And beside this, giving all diligence, at your faith virtue, and to virtue temperance, and to temperance knowledge, and to knowledge patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness kindness, and to kindness love. So we begin with faith, we end in love. Second Peter 1, 5 to 7. So everything is love. Love is the bond of perfectness. Maturity is measured by love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. If the church was to walk in love, I- I'm telling you, the world would have been won to Christ long ago. Many would have been won. Yeah, many would have been warned if the church was to walk in the love that God ordained the church to walk in. Hallelujah. Thank you, body of Christ. Thank you. Anthony, God bless you, okay? Anthony is feeling sleepy. Let, let's take him. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah. So, please, I hope you understand the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Yeah. So, we have to come there. But the whole thing has to do with love. Love, love. Pastor Finn, you are welcome. <laughs> love, 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 love. All right. Praise God. And, and it's going to be, it's going to be before Christ comes. Love. By the time the church walks in love, my, 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 my love is going to come. Praise God. Let's see something uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 42 and 43. Verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, do not, what do ye more than others? Do, do not even the publicans so be therefore perfect even as your
Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, the word perfect here, teleos, is the word for matured. He said, be matured. Now, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, understand that if perfection wasn't possible, he wouldn't have said, be perfect. But perfection here is all about maturity. In the King James, we see the word perfect, but actually the word means maturity. But remember that in the whole text, he's talking about love. He's talking about how to love your enemies and how to pray for your enemies and how to do all of these things for them. Actually, if you love your enemies and if you bless those who curse you and if you do good to those who hate you and if you pray for those who persecute you, by doing these things, Jesus is saying that you, begin to, you mature in a God kind of love and you become like your father. The perfection here has to do with love. Working in God, the God kind of love. When you mature in the God kind of love, you become matured and perfect. That is what the church will work in in these last days. That's his expectation for the church. Praise God. Now understand this. Jesus said, <laughs> Jesus said, you have heard that has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you. Now, in, in, in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, we have something called the law of first mention. What is the law of first mention? The first time the word love is mentioned in the New Testament. And the first time the word pray is mentioned in the New Testament. Now, it's a key in understanding the Bible. If you want to do a, a thorough and a deep study of the Bible, you have to use the principle of first mention. What it means is that any subject you are studying Find out the first time that the, the word you are looking for was first used in the Bible or in the New Testament. When it was first used. If you are studying about holiness, find out when it was first used. If you are studying about love, find out when it was first used because there's a key there. If you see when it was first used and how it was applied, it becomes a system of interpretation for that same category of things. If you see how the word was first used, it runs through the Bible. That is how that word is interpreted in the rest of the scriptures. Hallelujah. It will surprise you that when Jesus came to the earth, the first time he mentioned love and prayer is this verse. When he mentioned love, the first thing he mentioned spoke when he said love. He said, love your enemies. And when he spoke about prayer, he said, pray for your enemies. Can you imagine? In 43 and 44. So the first mention of Jesus' word for prayer and love has to do with praying for your enemies and loving your enemies. That means that is the standard of love, and that is the standard of prayer. Are you here or you are going home? That's the standard. The thing is that in the Old Testament, it wasn't possible. In fact, David couldn't pray for his enemies. He, he always cursed them. He prayed against them. And he was even trying to get God to hate the people he hated. That's the old covenant. Because the Mosaic covenant was based on retribution and judgment. It has nothing, nothing to do with love and grace. <laughs> but Jesus brought a new doctrine. He came to say, love your enemies. What a shock. Then pray for your enemies. That, totally new. Totally, totally new. So that's the standard for love. You, you, oh, I'm working in love. Are you able to love your enemies? And to pray for and bless them. That's the standard. 
Because actually, God has preserved a special reward in heaven for those who are able to love their enemies. It's in verse 46. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? I mean, I love you, I, I love you, love me. The, the reward, but if you love someone who hates you, there's a reward for you. There's a reward for loving those who hate you. Glory to God. That, that's the height of love, my brother, my sister. <laughs> well, it was difficult in the old, but it shouldn't be difficult in the New Testament. The reason is because you see, God loved you when you were his enemy. Once upon a time, you, you used to be God's enemy, but he loved you. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, being now reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5 verse 10. We were enemies, then he loved us and brought us in. The same love by which he loved us when we were enemies, that same love is shed abroad in your hearts. In Romans 5 verse 5. Hope make not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. So that love by which he loved his enemies, you were once an enemy. He gave you that love. So don't say you cannot love your enemy. It's a lie because the love, his love is given to you. It's in your heart. Look, Jesus loved his enemies on the cross. My, oh my. Do you know what they did to Jesus? Have you studied his suffering? What happened to him in the praetorium in the house of Caiaphas? If you want to watch my, my book of Bible stories and the Hollywood movies don't, don't portray well what Jesus went through. The closest is a passion for the, uh, for the Christ, but it's still not adequate. Uh, but it's in the Bible. For instance, for instance, in, in the Bible, for the sake of time, I don't want to go through all these things. Jesus, the Bible says that they spat on him. You read Mark, they, they spat on him. The Bible says that when they spat on him, his whole face was covered with spit. But when the Bible says they spat on him, who were those who spat on him? When you watch movies, it's about some three people who spat on him. But that's not what the Bible said. The Bible said it was the whole council. You know the council, the Sanhedrin. There were 71 members. The whole council, number one, with the elders, number two. With, the Bible says all the Pharisees and all the scribes. How many are they? And they were all assembled. The Bible said that they all, they spat on him. When we read from, they spat on him. So can you imagine, Jesus was there and they had lined up and they were all spitting on him. <laughs> you can just imagine the, the smell. <laughs> and it was early morning too. So I, I, I don't think they had even brushed their teeth. They were just angry. Just... And, and the Bible said that they, they slapped him with the palms of their hands. No, the, the Greek said they, they smote his face with rot. With rot. That's the Greek. So Jesus' face was disfigured. Yet, and all that he went through, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's, that's love for you. That's love for you. That's love for you. There's something in Numbers 35. Now, in Numbers 35, there's, there's something called, uh, the Bible gives us, in the Bible, God gives six cities of refuge. You know why he gives six cities of refuge? What happens is that when you kill somebody on the farm unintentionally, you just threw something, the person, it hit the person, the person died. He says you have to run 
Because if the person's brother or sister sees you, he, he begin to run after you to also kill you. So you run and get and find what is called a city of refuge. And God put it strategically, six of them in Israel. So it depends on how much you can run. Because if the one pursuing you can outrun you, then you die. So you run, uh, the moment you enter the gate, the guy cannot touch you. But the Bible says that if you kill, if you kill that person with wood and with iron, you are guilty. That God, God standard. Anyone you kill with wood and iron, you are guilty. Jesus was put on wood and they pierced him with iron. So all the people were condemned. They were guilty. According to the law. But Jesus said, forgive them. That's love. But someone said, oh, it, yeah, it's Jesus who? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who? I'm, I'm not Jesus. But Stephen prayed the same prayer. Stephen. They were stoning Stephen. Stoning. Stoning him. He prayed the same prayer Jesus prayed when he was on the cross. So, so, because the love, that same love, the kind of love where the persecuted loves the one persecuting him. That's the, the God kind of love. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, who, became a, who wrote the book of James, who became a pastor in Jerusalem for 30 years. Before he died, according to church history, they put him at the top of the temple, and the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, they said, deny Christ before all the people. It was a Passover time. He was a, no, no, Mary had other, other children, Mary. Mary had at least five children. So James, the one who wrote the book of Jude, was the brother of Jesus, half-brother. And the one who read the book of James was the half-brother of Jesus. <laughs> uh-huh. The same mother, but different fathers. You understand? <laughs> so this James, he is the one who pastored the church in Jerusalem. Uh-huh. They wanted him to deny Christ at the Passover. They put him at the temple, the top. That if he doesn't deny Christ, they would throw him down. They actually threw him down from the top of the temple and he hit the floor. His legs were broken. He managed to, to be on his knee. And he began praying for those who were persecuting him. He said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. They took clubs and they smashed him. Whilst he was dying, he was praying forgiveness for them. Hallelujah. Wow. So this is the standard. The church is to walk in love. But this is how Jesus began the whole thing. Say, I can do it. Yeah. Because if we all walk in love, the, the, the church will come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. By that time, we have all come to the acknowledgement, the precise knowledge of the Son of God, the unity of the faith. We are all the same. But Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Have you done that before? You have been cursing those who curse you, true or false? <laughs> Apostle Fred, you are welcome. <laughs> you have been cursing those who curse you. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, Jesus said, bless those. Now the word bless means to speak well. The word curse means to speak down. Now, anyone who speaks down on you is cursing you. Forget about it. You, you can never do it. You, you, who are you? It's a, it's a kind of curse. Curse is not just someone who takes a snap and take three X. And, no, no, no. It's, it's a curse. But anyone who defame you, always speaking ill of you, is also cursing you. But Jesus says that bless them. So what you have to do is that anyone who curses you, go inside your, your room, mention his name and say, Father, 
I bless Sister Beatrice. Lord, it shall be well with him. <laughs> Lord, bless her husband. Bless her business. That's what Jesus said we should do. Now, this is the... <laughs> haven't, you, no, no, haven't you read Romans 12 verse 14? Now, in Romans 12 verse 14, I, I'm shocked what Paul said. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. It's a strong, emphatic in the Greek. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. My, 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 my. Now, <laughs> please, are you following me? One of the way we, that's why, one of the reasons believers are not blessed is this, this matter. You know why Jesus says that if someone cares, you bless him. Let me give you two reasons. Number one, First Peter 3, verse, verse, verse 9. The answer is there. Not rendering evil for evil. That means someone does you evil. Don't do the person evil. Railing for railing. Or the person says bad things against you. Don't say bad things against the person again. On the contrary wise, a blessing. So he's saying that someone speaks gossips about you. Someone speaks negative about you. The words are very disheartening. Very sharp. Very poisonous. You feel like losing it. You want to take your, the phone and just deal with the person. The Bible says that don't do the same thing to the person. But on the contrary wise, blessing. So you have to start blessing the person. Why? Knowing that ye are there unto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. You know what it means? Someone gossips about you. Someone curses you. Someone speaks bad about you. You go to your room. You bless the person. You don't speak negative about, about the person. You bless the person. The Bible says that this is how, if you bless the person, that is how you can inherit a blessing. That's how you can be blessed. So there's a shortcut to be blessed. Why did Paul say, therefore I take pleasure in insult? Paul says, therefore I take pleasure in reproaches. You know what he's saying? When you insult me, I'm well pleased with it. He said, insult me again. Wow, just, just insult me. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. I take pleasure. Now, it's because of revelation. The, you insult me, I go to my room and I bless you and the blessings are coming. <laughs> and that, that's the way of the, and the blessings are coming. So if right now, just insult me and I'll just bless you right now. <laughs> he says that is how we inherit blessings. Hallelujah. No, that's how to. It's only the word that can elevate us. Then the Bible says that, the second reason is that if someone curses you or speaks ill of you, bless the person. You know why you should bless the person? Hebrews 7 verse 7. Hebrews 7 verse 7. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. <laughs> Look, if someone starts cursing you, start blessing the person. You know why? Because the less is blessed of the better. When you start blessing the person, you know what? God is putting you higher than the person. <laughs> That's when God is giving you blessings they cannot match. God, God is elevating you because the less is blessed. You, you are coming to the place, you are taking the place of the better because the less is always blessed of the better. So you become better. So always bless those who curse you. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. 
And you know, sometimes I get sad because I, I see people praying. You can pray for five hours. But there's a, Jesus says that in, in Mark eleven twenty five. 25. Therefore, when you stand praying, if ye have ought, <laughs> but when you stand praying, forgive. If ye have ought against any, you know what it means? It's a principle, for, a principle for prayer. When you start praying, he says, if ye have ought against any, forgive. Otherwise, the prayer is hindered. The word ought in the Greek is the slightest ill feeling. Ill feeling. Someone has annoyed you. You don't want to even talk to the person. You keep this, those distance in your heart. Your faith cannot operate because faith worked by love. Jesus says, when you stand praying, if ye have ought Against, or if anyone has ought against you, which you have not forgiven. Because offenses are always everywhere. People are always offending. So ought, the slightest ill feeling, if you harbor it, you, you are praying, declaring, and nothing is happening. That's why people can pray for five hours. Oh, yeah. After praying for five hours, I mean, so it's like the prayer is not working. Because Jesus said so. You are speaking... There was this man who was cancer. He had cancer, fourth stage. The doctors gave him three days to die. That he was going to die in three days. The Holy Ghost quickened him because he was full of bitterness. That he began to forgive those who had offended him. Forgive. <laughs> Look, he, he rose up. After 30 years, he was still alive. He's still alive. After 30 years. <laughs> Meanwhile, he was given three, three <laughs> days. Yeah. A certain guy... A certain woman had a problem with his mother-in-law. Strong Kate, her daughter was full of epilepsy. God convicted her. She forgave her mother-in-law instantly. The child was healed of epilepsy. So a lot of the problems is not because you are praying well, but your heart. You understand? Praise God. And speaking ill about people, speaking negative about people, Men of God, your friends, it's not working in love. I recently read a story about Kenneth Higgin. He said he went to a camp meeting. Three days he couldn't sleep. The first night he couldn't sleep. He woke up, kneel down, prophesy, I declare sleep. For so he gave up his beloved sleep. He declared, still, some morning he couldn't sleep. The next day he couldn't sleep, the third day. So he went to God and said, Lord, how come I've done everything but I cannot connect with my faith? And the Lord said, because you touched my servant. He said, ah, what did I do? He said, you spoke against my servant. Ah, he couldn't even remember. So he said, Lord, what did I say? And the Lord reminded him. He said that he heard of something a pastor had done in town. And when he heard it, this is what he said. Higgins said, he said, anybody who has sense will never do this. That's what he said. Anybody who has sense will not do this. And Jesus told him, you, 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 you never knew what pressure my servant was going through, why he did what he did. And you are criticizing him. That's why you cannot connect with your faith. That's why you, you are tro- <laughs> going through trouble. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. But we all work in love. Yes. And, and you know, the church is going to beat the early church. Working in love. Yeah. It's going to come. And we are going to grow. The Bible says that the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. And neither said any of them of the things which they possessed was their own. 
but he had one thing common and great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all the early church were so full of love so much that what I have is not for me it's also for you in Acts 4.32 before Jesus comes we will not look back to the act of the apostles it will just be a beginning and a threshold this love is going to sweep among us hallelujah praise the Lord so the first one is maturity in love that is what will bring us to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I explained that the fullness of Christ is the body of Christ. And the body has a stature. And the stature has a measure. <laughs> and the measure is attained by love. Number two. Number two. The Lord expects us to be effective in service. Each of us, every member of the body of Christ must be effective in service. Every member of the body of Christ must be effective in service. Every member. Now, this is what he's expecting to see his church. Now, one reason why the body of Christ is not growing is because there's no love. The second reason is because you, where you are sitting, you are not doing what you're supposed to do in the house of God. You are not taking your place in the house of God. That is why the body is not growing. Pastor Michael, can you come again? I want to explain what Jesus is expecting. Now, I use Anthony to describe where the church is and where the church must be. We'll go back to Ephesians 4. We read Ephesians 4. Now, look at verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplied according to the effectual working in the measure of every part make it increase unto the edifying of itself in love Ephesians 4.16 let me explain what he's saying the first is love we attain the stature by love but there's another reason and that must be accomplished Jesus, Jesus is expecting that before he comes what is the second reason Listen, I know you know that we are the body of Christ, true or false. We are the body of Christ. Ephesians 5.30. Ephesians 5.30 says we are the members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So the moment you give your life to Christ, you come to the body. So it may be the nose, it may be the ear, it may be the eye, it may be the eyelid, it may be the, this nice chin. You understand? You, you may be, <laughs> it may be the hand. We are all part of the body. Some of us who are inside, the liver, the kidney, the marrow, the joints, all of us, the moment you give your life to Christ, you become a member of his body. Now, look at this handsome man here. Assuming only 10% of his body parts are working. What, what happened? Paralysis. He, he cannot, I mean. The body of Christ, eh, let me tell you something. At Maybe only 20% of the body is working. 20 is too much. How many percent will you give? Five. <laughs> the way things are going is five. Okay. <laughs> five percent of the body working. Now, everybody sitting here, everybody in the entire church must do ministry. I'm not saying you must be in full-time ministry, but ministry is service. You must be in service. If one member is not active in service, it affects the whole body. Okay. 
Because all of us, we are the body. Now, if you are the body and you are the year, and you go like, oh, because I'm the year, I'm tired of hearing. As when the year stops hearing, what will happen? The year doesn't hear for the year. It hears for the whole body. Your part, which is seemingly insignificant in that church, you think it's insignificant, but as far as the body is concerned, what you're not doing is affecting the whole body. Whether you are an usher, a prayer warrior, whatever you are doing, affect the body. Look at the nose. If the nose does, refuses to smell or to, it says, I want to, I want to close myself up. I don't want to function. It affects the whole body. If the mouth does not function, it affects the whole body. The mouth doesn't eat for the mouth. It eats for the body. So, for Christ to come, Ephesians 4.16, it says, according to the effectual working. What is effectual working? Working effectively. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part. The measure, the word measure deals with the size of the every, the word measure deals with size, the size of a member of the body. You see, the ear is smaller than the hand. The hand is smaller than the tie. According to the effectual working, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, that means no matter your size, the word measure has to do with the size of the various parts of the body. No matter your size, you have to work effectively. If the ear is working, the eye is working, the nose is working, every every part, internal and external is working, the body grows fast. Then Christ can come. Then Christ can come. Because we all but now we have crisis in the body of Christ. The effectual working in the measure of every part. You see? Look at the word measure of every part. Measure this with size. The, the size of every part. No matter your size, you must work. The problem is this. Many are not working because of, they are comparing themselves. Those who are the ears are trying to see. And those who are the nose, they are trying to prophesy with the mouth. Those who are the hand are trying to see or smell. So, instead of functioning as you are, you are functioning as you prefer to be. So, people are seeking for places of prominence, but not where God has, God has tempered the body together. Praise God. Ephesians 4, 7 tells us that unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Paul compares grace to how blood flows in the body. Unto every one of us is giving grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Look, the measure, he's, talking about, he's still talking about the body. The measure, look at the size of the year. The year and the tie, which is bigger. Okay, you're talking about the body of Christ. You have a year ministry and your brother has a tie ministry. Okay, which is more important? You don't even know which one is. So they are all important, right? Okay. But which, which, the year and the tie, which has more blood? Which has more blood? The tie. Now, Paul compares grace to blood because he's using the natural body. Unto every one of us is giving grace according to the measure. <laughs> according to the size. All right. So the year and the tie are all important, but the tie has more blood. So the tie ministry has more grace. 
than the year ministry. But does it mean that the time ministry is more important than the year ministry? No. Why? You see, in God's wisdom, the reason the tie has more blood is because of where the tie is placed. Because where the year is placed, it doesn't need great, uh, 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 blood as much as the tie. If we give this blood to you, it will destroy you. You understand? Where the tie is needs more blood because of where it is placed in the body. Not because it is more important than the year. You may have your, you may, it may be a smaller size in the body. What you are doing in the ministry may be unrecognized by men. You may even be, have a hidden ministry. Or the people you are you're handling may not even be big. Nevertheless, you are in the body. Maybe you are in the year. But you're always comparing yourself to the ties, those who are the ties. And you are always amazed at the ample grace they have. The fact that they have more grace than you does not mean they are more important in the body than you. The reason they have more grace than you is because of where they are placed in the body. Because of their function in the body. And God has placed them there because God tempered the body and God assembled the body and placed them there because of their function. You, mean you are despising yourself and where you were, but you are the ear. If you refuse to hear, <laughs> it affects the body. <laughs> Hallelujah. So you, you must know who you are and function. Close your eyes to those who are higher than you or lower than you and do what Christ expects you to do. Please, are you here? Yeah. If I, not, every, not everyone is supposed to be in the limelight for the world to see. What kind of ministry is that? What kind of understanding is that? It, it's a borrowed concept from the world. So we are not even satisfied. Look, let me... Do you know that some, the, some of the body parts that are not seen are more important than the parts that are seen? The liver. Okay, if God asks you, son, do you want to be the liver or you want to be the eyes? What will you say? Do you know that your eyes can be removed and you are alive? But if your, your, your liver is cut, you die. <laughs> but the liver ministry is a hidden ministry. No one sees the liver. But it's very important. Because God has conferred a more abundant honor to the part that lacks. Or the invisible part has more honor. You, miss a, you, you meet a nice lady in town, and you go like, wow. Sister Julian, your, your, your eyes are nice. Your, your eyes are so nice. Wow. <laughs> I was somewhere with my wife uh, four days ago. The, manager, the, the man said, hmm, um, um, I, know I, can, I know I cannot admire someone's wife, but I want to say that your, your, your eyes are very pure. They are nice. That's what she he told my wife. I know I cannot admire someone's wife, but he was really admiring. <laughs> anyway, who said you cannot admire? I mean, <laughs> told my wife, your eyes, are, her eyes were so nice. Now, what makes the eyes nice? The purity and the niceness of the eyes is from the liver. It's the liver that keeps the eye and makes it nice as it is. The eye is not responsible for making itself nice. It's from the liver. But no one sees you and says, oh, your liver is nice. <laughs> they will praise the eyes for what the eyes has not done. Meanwhile, it's the liver. You come to a church, and the church is decorated, the church is nice. 
They praised the pastor. But is the, is David? But there were people who were sweeping and mopping the ground. <laughs> Hallelujah. And who were putting the place in shape, which nobody saw. But they will have their reward in heaven. Yeah. Father Nash was discouraged because he was interceding for Father Charles Finney, all his revivals. He was the one who prayed for Finney's revivals. But he was discouraged that he was not into the limelight. So he lost the ministry of intercession. He lost that ministry. If you have that ministry, why do you want to be in public? It's all because we have not seen how the body functions. Hallelujah. So, my, my, my brothers and sisters, Jesus wants, he says, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, if an usher be effect, usher, usher effectively, if we're a pastor, pastor effectively, if we're a prophet, do your work effectively, praise God. Wherever you have been positioned, he says, occupy till I come. Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. To give unto every man according as his work shall be. Revelation 22 verse 12. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall give unto you a crown of glory that fadeth not away. 1 Peter 5 verse 4. We must all appear at the judgment seat of Christ. That every one of us would, might receive according as we have done in the body. Whether they be good or bad. So there is a day of reckoning. But Jesus said, occupy till I come. What he gave you, use it effectively. Hallelujah. Yeah. So the, number one is love. Number two is the fact that we must effectively take our place. The Bible says that the body grows when every member is working. The year is working. Your sinew, your ligament, your joints, your marrow, every part working, the Lord is satisfied. Jesus wants to come and meet a church like that. Praise God. Take your place in ministry. One cause of the immaturity of the church is that only 5% of the body is working. Take your place in ministry. Hallelujah. Thank you very much. Hallelujah. Please, are you here? So, number one, we need to come to the measure of the stage of the fullness of Christ. It deals with love and also active in service. Taking your place in service. Don't look at the world. Don't look at anyone. Just do what he called you to do. Don't compare yourself with anyone. Be, be faithful. He, he rewards faithfulness. Well done, that good and faithful servant. Hallelujah. Now, number three, what is he expecting of the church? What is his expectation? What is his expectation? Now, Jesus, now look at this point well. He wants us to totally subdue his enemies. He wants the church to totally subdue his enemies. Let me put it in a scriptural way. Jesus is waiting for a footstool. He's waiting for a footstool. Say a footstool. All right. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. All right. So number three, Jesus is waiting for a footstool. He wants the redeemed, his church people, to totally subdue the enemies which he conquered. Let me explain. Scriptural way, 
Jesus is expecting a footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, this psalm is a messianic psalm. When we say it's messianic, it's not about David, it's about Christ. Some of the psalms are messianic, like Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts by saying, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? We know it's not about David, it's about Christ on the cross. It's messianic. This psalm is messianic, it's about Jesus. Now, David wrote this psalm prophetically thousand years before it was fulfilled. It can only be prophetic. When he wrote this psalm, it was fulfilled after thousand years. When was this psalm fulfilled? The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. When? When was it fulfilled? It was fulfilled when Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. Now, when Jesus entered into heaven, it was glorious. He was going with all the sins from Abraham's bosom. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be, be ye lifted up. And a king of glory. So now, he entered into heaven with such glory. And when Jesus got into heaven, the father had a coronation service for Jesus. Now, there was a coronation service for Jesus. What it means is that there was a ceremony for Jesus' enthronement. When Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended, there was, in heaven, there was a kind of coronation service for him. A service for his exaltation and for his crowning, his enthronement. So, just picture heaven right now as I talk. Jesus now is in heaven and there's a coronation service for him. The father, because of what Jesus did, the father enthroned him. So, the father told Jesus, the Lord said unto my Lord, who is speaking? The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is Jehovah. Jehovah said unto my Lord, L-O-R-D, small L-O-R-D, Adonai. Jehovah said unto Adonai, sit thou at my right hand. Now this was a scene in heaven. David is prophetic. He saw thousand years before time. The Lord said unto my Lord, the father is speaking to the son. We know it because of uh, Matthew 22 from verses 42 to 45. Jesus asked the Pharisees, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, David. Then he said, all right. If David is his son, why then does he call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit down at my right, thou at my right hand until I make thine enemy thy footstool. If he is son, if he, if, he's, if David is his son, then why is he his Lord? Now Jesus said that. So Jesus was referring to himself. So the Lord said unto my Lord. So in that ceremony in heaven, when Jesus resurrected, the father enthroned Jesus by saying, sit down at my right hand. Praise God. And that's a very powerful place. Right hand is not just a place. It's not just a, a geographical place. It's a positional description. When the Bible says right hand, right hand is actually in the kingdom, the most favorite position in the kingdom is called right hand. It's not just like right hand side. <laughs> right hand is the place 
where all the powers of the universe is exercised, is taught. All the power of the universe is in a place called right hand. Jesus told the Pharisees in Luke 22, verse 69, Hereafter, he shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power of God. Right, the right hand is a place of power. He calls it the right hand of the power of God. Everything God did in the Old Testament was by his right hand. Exodus 15, verse 16. Thy right hand, O God, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand has dashed into pieces the enemy. God divided the Red Sea by his right hand. So, God gave Jesus the right hand. Praise God. All the powers of the universe, the exercising of the powers of the universe was committed to the ascended Christ. Remember, the Bible says, wherefore God also has highly exalted him. Hallelujah. Highly. Highly. The word highly exalted means, you know what it means? The highest position of priority. Jesus was exalted by the Father to the infinite height, possessed only by deity, because his humanity was exalted. He put him at his right hand. Now, now follow, follow me. Let me describe what happened in heaven. The father now put him at the right hand and put him on the throne. Number two, the father crowned Jesus. He put crowns on him. How do I know? He, he, he wasn't given a single crown. He was given, he was given crowns. Revelation 19 verse 12 tells us that his eyes were as flames of fire and he was crowned with many crowns. He had on his head many crowns. He had a name written which no man knew but he himself. So he had crowns and he had a throne. Say crown and say throne. Among the oriental kings, the kings of the east, during their enthronement, they are given three things. In those days, if during the ceremony where kings are, what's the name for it? Enthronement of kings. Those ceremonies. In those days, any king who is enthroned, they receive three things. They receive a throne, then they receive a crown, then they receive a footstool. Kings had three things. A throne, a crown, and a footstool. Jesus had a throne. He had crowns, but he didn't have a footstool. The father, instead of the father giving him a footstool, the father gave the footstool to him as a promise. So Jesus didn't have a footstool. Are you following me? It's a serious matter. I want you to follow. Kings had a, a throne, a crown, and a footstool. Jesus had a throne, crown, but no footstool. The king of kings, no footstool. But the father said one day he will have a footstool. Now what is a footstool? Bring my chair, let me illustrate what footstool is. Okay, and a chair. I, I need a, you can, you can bring my chair. A nice chair that will represent a throne. Okay, uh, sh- let me come down there right Okay, so. Okay, so. Let's say that, no, it's okay. This is okay. Uh, if it doesn't work, I'll, I'll call you. So this is a throne. All right. Let me sit at your right hand. I 
hope the throne is correct. So, Jesus, so kings were enthroned. Then they were crowned. They were crowned. But that's not how, or they had a full stool. A full stool was a place for the resting of the feet. Where the feet can rest. So, so kings had a crown, they had a throne, and they had a full stool. It's very comfortable when your feet are resting, like I'm doing. But Jesus, he had a crown, he had a throne, he has no footstool. So the father could only give to him as a promise. So the father said, sit down at my right hand until time, until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Now, now listen. Don't, 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 don't go. Don't, we, we'll come back to it. Thank you very much. You, you can sit down for me. Thank you. Now, listen. This footstool matters a lot to Jesus. It has all to do with his coming. It matters a lot with, to Jesus. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, from verses 12 to 13, the Bible says that this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. So after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Henceforth, expecting, expecting to have a footstool till his enemies be made his footstool. Now, he's saying since Jesus was enthroned, he has been expecting to get a full stool. Hebrews 10 verse 13 says he's expecting. The word is ekdekomai. What does it mean? How expectant is Jesus to get a full stool? Ekdekomai is from a root word we get in Romans 8 verse 19. Which says that for the earnest expectation of the creature... Waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. I know you're familiar with that verse, but you know what it means. The earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. The word waited, apekdekomai. You know what it means? It means that creation is waiting for the sons of God, you and I. Creation is saying, when will the sons of God manifest? You know what it means? Because creation is in bondage now. But the Bible has said that the, the liberation of creation from bondage lies on the shoulders of the sons of, man, uh, sons of God when they mature and when they manifest. So actually, the problem of the nations lies on the, the shoulders of the church. Praise God. The Bible says that the, ex, the endless expectation of the creature waiteth. They are waiting for the sons of God to take their place, to manifest, ultimately in the resurrection. The sons of God must manifest, and creation is going to be relieved from corruption. But the, what, what am I saying? This the word waiteth, waiteth, is this, the root from whence we get the same word of Jesus expecting to have a full stool. 
Waited literally describes someone. Have you ever had a guest who's come to visit you? And you can't wait for him to come, the person to come. And you stand aside to see whether the person is coming. You scan at the horizon to see whether he's showing up. You, you can't wait for the person to come. The word waited actually describes someone who is tiptoeing with an outstretched head and neck to check whether they are coming. Creation is waiting at the signs of God coming. It is from that root word that is for Jesus expecting to have a full stool. Jesus is expecting. I wonder how Jesus, Jesus is sitting, but he's waiting to have a full stool. He wants a place to rest his feet. Hallelujah. Jesus is waiting. Mama, mama. He's waiting for a full stool. Mama, mama. Jesus is waiting for a full stool. He's waiting for a full stool. He's anticipating. Praise God. In Joshua 10, verse 24. Joshua conquered the Canaanites. He conquered their kings and brought all of them. And they all bowed down their necks. And he brought his king, his officers and captains, and they put their feet on their necks. In the days of Joshua, they put their feet on their necks. You know what it means? You are not just our enemies. You are, you are, you are totally subjugated under our feet. So Joshua was, was literally saying that all the kings of Canaan are our footstool. <laughs> they are, we call it sanquas. You know when someone says sanquas? Like, <laughs> uh, you are not just defeated. You, you are total dom- dominion. So they all came and their, Joshua's officers put their, his, their feet on their necks. That's footstool. It's symbolic. All right. How many people are following Jesus wants to get a footstool. Now, what is the footstool? The footstool is the place for his feet to rest. What is his feet? He has a throne. He's crowned. But he's expecting. Is it coming? Is it in the 1930s? Is it in the 1940s? Is it in the 50s? 60s? 70s? Is it in the 2000s? He's expecting to have a footstool. Let me explain the first two well. Pastor Michael, can you come again? Today, I, I, you are preaching with me. I better get a, a chair for you here. To... All right. Now, the first stool is the feet, the place where the feet rest. The first stool is, means your feet is resting. Brethren, Jesus has been anticipating for his feet to rest. But this time around, Jesus' footstool, what his feet will lie on is not a chair. It's his enemies. That means his feet is resting on his enemies. That means his enemies are, his enemies are so powerless that the feet have totally subjugated his enemies in experience. His feet have totally subdued his enemies. He wants his, Jesus is waiting for his feet to totally be rested and subdue his enemies. Now, what is the feet of Christ? What is the feet of Christ? Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. 
and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body now this is the head this is the head Christ this is the body the church Jesus is the highest authority in the universe like the head is the, high, is the highest the feet represent those who are working in the lowest authority but the head is the highest the feet is part of the body is that also the feet is a member of the body <laughs> but the feet the soles of the feet the nails the toenails the nails of the feet the toenails and the soles of the feet represent the lowest the least the weakest and the feeblest members of the body of Christ the feet represent those who are working in the lowest authority it represents the lowest among the church members it represents the weakest amongst us the least among us the feeblest among us those who are the most fragile they are the feet they are the feet of Christ <laughs> hallelujah they are the feet of Christ now he has a throne he has crowns he's expecting for 2,000 years he's waiting he's waiting when will it be he wants his feet arrested the least amongst us the weakest amongst us the feeblest amongst us the last among us to come in experience total victory over all of his enemies Jesus conquered all his enemies in Calvary the head won the victory he wants the least of us to practically re-echo the victory he purchased for us on Calvary all that Jesus did for us to practically experimentally walk in that victory and that is to say it's not the pastors it's not the evangelist it's not the prophet it's not the apostles I'm talking about ordinary church members I'm talking about ushers and I'm talking about the least among us walking in total victory subduing the devil subduing the enemies of God but my brother my sister we are talking about walking in the reality of the finished work of Christ we are talking about Jesus receiving the full reward of his sacrifice because what he purchased for us we have scratched just the surface but now he's expecting the least of us what are his enemies you know the enemies of Christ <laughs> what are the enemies because the enemies are the full stool what are his enemies what are his enemies my brother sickness is one of the enemies disease is one of the enemies viruses is one of the enemies fear is one of the, those enemies death is one of those enemies curse is an enemy hatred is an enemy all the enemies addictions addictions pornography masturbation all sorts of addictions these are all enemies satan principalities the cohort of satan diseases poverty poverty on the cross jesus conquered poverty
poverty. Jesus conquered sicknesses. Jesus conquered coronavirus. Jesus conquered hatred. Jesus conquered selfishness. Jesus conquered abuse. Jesus conquered all sort of addictions, whether it is masturbation, all sort of curse, anxiety, worry, anxiety, depression, fears. All of these are the enemies he conquered. Jesus conquered depression. Jesus conquered anxiety. Jesus conquered worry. Jesus conquered fear of every sort. Fear was paralyzed. Every demon in hell. Jesus despoiled. And Jesus took their armament. He shipped them. And Jesus spoiled all their works. And Jesus paralyzed the death-dealing power of the enemy. Death was conquered. Satan himself was conquered. All the enemies was conquered. And now, Jesus... He's waiting to have a full stool. He's waiting that the weakest among us, the simplest among us, the least among us, the lowest in the church, begin to walk in the victory he pitches for us. That means that every one of us, we are working in health. We are working in health. We are working in health. We are working in strength. We are working in his ability. We are working as he walked. Thank you, Jesus. Mama, mama, mama. Jesus will have a footstool. He will have a footstool. The ordinary members are ruling over Satan. The ordinary members are prevailing over wizards and witches and witchcraft. The ordinary members are full of joy. The ordinary members are full of health. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Listen. Hallelujah. Listen. That is to say that the weakest among us, <laughs> the weakest among us, the feeblest among us is working in divine health. Divine health. The weakest among us prevails against addiction. We rule in the midst of our enemies. The weakest is ruling over pornography. The weakest is ruling over masturbation. The weakest is ruling against lust. He's enthroned. Listen. That means that we are not we are not crying against witches and wizards. He, his feet is resting. Satan, his enemies are now the footstool. The feet is resting. No longer are we crying against witches. Who are wizards? Who are witches? How about the economy? Everyone is complaining about the economy. How hard the economy is. But the time is coming. The weakest among the church. Whilst men are complaining, they are praising. They are praising. Because they know who they are. They live by the economy of heaven. They live by heaven's economy. They know who they are. They are manifesting their estates in the land of the living. They know it. The first two. The weakest among us. A time is coming. Listen. Listen. Before Catherine Coleman died, 
Kachukoma prophesied, and for years I've been wondering how that prophecy will come to pass. Kachukoma said, I see, I see, I see. A time is coming in the body of Christ before the Lord returns. I see there is not a single sick person in the entire body of Christ. If it wasn't Catherine Coleman, how, how will I believe it? He said, I see it. Not one feeble person in the entire body of Christ. He said, I see it. I see it. I see it. And I know at that time, the feeblest amongst us, <laughs> the feeblest among us, <laughs> is like Billy Graham. The feeblest amongst us is like Pastor Chris. The feeblest amongst us, we walk in light, we walk in truth, we walk in revelation. Satan is nothing again. Just aware they are dethroned. Witches are nothing again. Cases are nothing again. Fear is gone. Fear is gone. Depression is gone. Worry is gone. Anxiety is gone. Mama. Mama. Christ will have a full stool. He's waiting for his The feet must rest. We are no longer fighting. We are resting in his finished work. That is the time we will empty hospitals. <laughs> we will empty leprosariums. That is the time. But this is it. When will this happen? You see, don't think that Psalm 110 is about the millennium. It's not a millennium. Because in the millennium, there are no enemies. Sit down until I make thy enemies thy footstool. In the millennium, there are no enemies. Satan is bound in abyss in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. There are no enemies in the millennium. What time will Christ have a full stool? When is he going to get a full stool? It is between the time he sits and the time he comes back. Because in Psalm 110, from verse 5 and verse 6, the psalmist says, The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Psalm 110 begins from when the Lord is seated and prophesies Armageddon. Armageddon is when Jesus Christ comes with the same to fight the Antichrist. That's Armageddon. He comes to strike through kings in the day of his wrath in the same psalm. When will Christ have a footstool? Between the time he sat 2,000 years ago. And the time he comes back, within he must have a full stool. And where are we on the calendar? We are closer. Now, now, now listen, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 25 and 26, the Bible says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Question, when will the last enemy, which is death, be destroyed? Rapture. 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 
The last enemy is dealt with at rapture. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all change, sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. For the mortal must put on immortality, and the corruptible must put on incorruption. For when the mortality shall have been clothed with immortality, and when the corruptible shall have been clothed with incorruption, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is that sting? O grave, where is that victory? When will it be fulfilled? When mortality is clothed with immortality. That's rapture. The last enemy is totally annihilated at rapture. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now listen. He will put all the enemies under his feet. And the last one will be death. Which will happen at rapture. That means before rapture, all the enemies, all the enemies, depression, poverty, addiction, all the enemies will be under his feet. Before the last one, which is death, is handled at rapture. That means before the Lord comes for the glorious church, the feeblest amongst us will conquer and subdue. All of God's enemies will begin to be walk in the power that was given to us. There will be a rediscovery of all that we are and all that he did and all that he gave us. We begin to walk practically in those realms and in those, those fear and that cove of spiritual beauty. We walk in them. And the last one is death. So he will have a full stool and the last one will be at rapture which is death. Hallelujah. He said, I will build my church. And the gate of Hades will not prevail against it. I will build my church. He's the one building the church. And brethren, Christ will have a full stool. <laughs> the church will not close in defeat. The church will close in triumph. It will close in triumph. Jesus today is expecting to have his feet rested when the church members are complaining full of complaint crying so I conquered it for them I want them to come to the place of rest hallelujah verse 2 says the Lord shall send the rod of his strength out of Zion roll down in the midst of thine enemies he tells us how will get a full stool. He gives us a clue. The Lord shall send the rod of his strength. What is the rod of his strength? His authority. He will send forth his authority out of Zion. What is Zion? The church. Zion in the Bible is used in generic sense. It's generic. So you have to know which Zion is used in context. But in this context, it's the church. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. The church is Zion. In this context, Zion speaks of the church. The, the Lord shall send a rod of his strength out of Zion, which means that Messiah's authority will be exercised in the church. Because Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. The Passion Version says, all the authority in the universe is given unto me. Go now in this my authority and preach the gospel to every... So, we have been given that universal wide authority. We have it. Mama, 
we begin to experience it. Every one of us, not just special pastors, not just special apostles, every one of us is going to happen. We all have the Holy Ghost in the same measure. You own the Holy Ghost, it's the same measure. Hallelujah. Oh, years ago, Alexander Dowie was on the high seas and there were raging storms hitting the ship. Dowie stood up and said, Peace be still. And had the same result Jesus had when he encountered the storm. Peace be still and peace was still. This thing is going to be done by 16-year-old girls. They'll be still in storms. There'll be a sudden awakening of the church. They will realize that so all these things are were already with us. They were already with us. Hallelujah. It's here with us. Now, verse 3 says that people shall be willing in the day of your power. <laughs> that people shall be willing in the day of your power. The word willing actually means free will offerings. Your people will be free will offerings. You know free will offerings? When you go and give to God and no one is forcing you. That people shall be free will offerings. That means your people will freely give themselves to you without anybody coercing them. You don't need 10 preaching for you to give your life to Christ or to offer your dedication to God. It will be free. That people shall be willing in the day of your power. Now in the Hebrew, it's not power, it's army. In the day of your army. The Hebrew says, your people shall be free will offering in the day of your military or your militia. God has an end time army. Those who be part of that army, they freely give themselves to him. He says, in the beauties of holiness. That's what he says. But the Hebrew says, in the splendor of consecration. They will give their lives to God, to Jesus so much that if you see them, their consecration is a splendor. Wow. These guys are beautiful. Just because they've given their life to, to the Lord. Everything is given. You know consecration? You know what consecration is? Consecration is present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In, in those days, when you go to the altar and you take a, a, a sheep and put it on the altar, there's a transfer of ownership. It means that the sheep is not yours again. The sheep is no longer yours. If you give your body as consecration to God, it means your time is not yours again. Your body is not yours again. You don't choose where to go. You don't choose what to eat. You don't choose <laughs> what to dress. You don't choose what to do. You say, Lord, you own me. We call it consecration. So your people will freely give themselves. You know what's going to happen? Believers, it may be difficult to commit themselves to the Lord but it's going to change people are going to freely it will be, their consecration will be so beautiful the Bible calls it, call it splendor everything is given everything, their, everything is for him their time is for him their money is for him there's going to be a great awakening in the church and Christ will have a full stop hallelujah do you believe it will happen? Can you please be seated? For the next 10 minutes, then we'll close. Hallelujah. The Father gave Jesus a throne and a crown. He didn't give him a footstool. Kings had thrones and crowns and footstool. 
but for Jesus it's a promise but definitely he's going to have a full stool because the least and the feeblest amongst us are going to walk in his victory do you know what Jesus achieved for us the church has used only 2% hallelujah finally number 4 what does Jesus expect of the church he expects us to expect his return he expects us to expect his return you see Jesus is not coming for he, he, he wants to be desired he wants to be desired. In Hebrews 9 verse 28, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, but unto them that look for him, <laughs> shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Unto them that look for him. Now, King James says, unto them that look for him. But other version says, unto them that eagerly wait for him. Now, few believers are eagerly waiting for him. Unto them he shall appear the second time. In Philippians 3.20 for our citizenship is in heaven. From whence we look for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who shall change our vile bodies that it might be fashioned as unto his glorious body. Philippians 3.20 We are heavenly citizens. From whence we look from whence we eagerly, the word look actually means we eagerly await his coming. The problem with the present church is that the church is not awaiting his coming. Now, why should we await his coming? Because that is Jesus' love language. Awaiting his coming is actually the acid test of our love for Jesus. The whole thing is love. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are married? How many of you have had weddings before? Do you know that in every wedding, 80%, 80 percent of the time the woman desires the wedding more than the man or the, the woman eagerly waits for the wedding or is anxious about the wedding more than a man true or false at least i didn't say at least 80 percent women are more concerned with the wedding and what they are going to wear and so many things so the women will talk about the wedding mostly more than the man that's what i think what do you think so most of the times the women give more pressure so when is the wedding coming on when I come to see my parents when 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 the church is the only bride that's not anticipating the wedding day <laughs> you see <laughs> the church is dispensationally in this dispensation the church is a bride but in, in, in eternity, the church will be part of the corporate bride. Okay. Our relationship with Christ is, is a marital kind of relationship. He's coming, but the church is not desiring him. You want to marry. But you call your beloved, and she's not even interested in a wedding. She's interested in your car. She's interested in your fridge. She's interested in your money. But you yourself, she's not interested in you. Will you go ahead? If you love her, you wait a while. So at least she can change her concepts more and concentrate on you. So that's what is happening. <laughs> the church 
is not expecting his coming. The first generation, the first early church expected his coming more than us. Do you know that Jesus expects every generation to expect his coming, even if he's not coming at that time? Expecting his coming has nothing to do with whether he's coming at that time. <laughs> Check the Bible. Even the early church, they were expecting. All the generations, they were expecting because that is how he defines love. It doesn't matter whether he comes or not. Because, number one, there is going to be a reward for those who expect his coming. That reward is not for last-day Christians alone. It's also for early Christians. Apostle Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me, and not to me only, but to all them that long for his appearing. Look, when we go to heaven, some people will not have some certain crowns because they didn't expect Jesus' coming. To all them that expect, wicked, long for his coming, they long, oh Lord, I love you. When are you coming? You, you just love him. There's a crown for you. But you see, thousand years ago, people are going to receive those crowns who came thousand years ago. Uh, there are people in our day who will not receive that crown because they lived thousand years ago and expected his coming and we live in our day which he may come in our time and we're not expecting his coming. So we will lose that crown. So it's for every age because any 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 believer in every age can have that crown because the crown is reserved for all who expect his coming in every age that presupposes that we are supposed to expect his coming at every age at every generation please are you here with me because the whole thing is about love apostle paul said if any man love not the lord jesus christ let him be anathema maranatha first corinthians 16 22 Look at what he said. If any man does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. The word anathema, that's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. means a curse. Let him be cursed. Almost like he has put a curse on those who don't expect, who don't love Jesus Christ. Then he says maranatha. Maranatha is an Aramaic word which means he is coming. He comes. So he relates love to his coming. Those who don't love him, of course, they'll be under a curse when he comes. <laughs> that he says, he comes. Maranatha. Listen, the early church, church tradition tells us that when they meet themselves, they don't say good morning. They don't say good afternoon. No. The persecution was so intense. When they meet themselves, the greeting was Maranatha. That is how believers identify true believers. When I say Maranatha, then the other person will re respond, he comes. But when I say Maranatha, and you go like, eh, what is that? then I know you are not a believer. Because there were a lot of false brethren amongst them. So they used Maranatha to even identify the true genuine believers. It was a secret code. So when I see Maranatha, can you imagine that the early church used the word Maranatha, which means he comes. So they were expecting. They were expecting. And we need to expect. We need to expect his coming. Hallelujah. You know why we should expect his coming? It solves the, sanct the holiness problem. The holiness problem is solved when we anticipate his coming. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear unto us what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, 
we shall be as we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in himself purifies himself even as he is pure. So what it means is that those who are expecting his coming, they live well. Their work is purified. They work in holiness. Because you are waiting for him. You want to live well. You want to live for him. That's why we should expect his coming. He says every man who has this hope in himself purifies himself. So do you have this blessed hope in your heart? And those who are anticipating his coming, they are also fruitful in God's house. You see, Jesus gave a parable. He, he said something in Luke 12, verse 45. That servant who says in his heart, my Lord delayeth, and now shall begin to beat his servant. He says in his heart that his Lord delayeth. Then he begins to mistreat his co-workers and his assistants because he says in his heart, the Lord delays. Why is he not handling his co-workers well? Because he says in his heart, the Lord is delaying. But when you know he is coming, you begin to be faithful. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall give unto you a crown of glory. You, you, you are conscious of doing the work well because you expect his coming. Praise God. And those who expect his coming, there's a blessing of divine health. In Romans 8.23, the Bible says we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. For what a man seeth, why then does he hope for it? We are saved by hope. That is the salvation of our bodies. But in the Greek, we are sozo by hope. It's the same word for heal. We are healed by hope. There is a way those who expect is coming, they have a kind of spiritual influence that rubs over their body and keeps their body fit. My brethren, one reason why 99% of the church is not expecting his coming, maybe 95, when you go to the underground churches and those who are persecuted, they are actually expecting Christ. Uh -huh. But those of us in the cities, we're not expecting Christ. One major reason, the entire message is not preached well. It is preached in fear. So everyone is afraid. When we hear about, about his coming, we are, we are afraid. But it's not a fear message. It's a love message. It's all about the wedding day. We are thinking of we being disqualified at his coming. That's a problem. So it, it comes from the pulpit. It comes from the pulpit. If it is well preached, every, we all start anticipating his coming. Our qualification for his coming will, will not be by works. It will still be by grace. But our reward will be by our works. You have to separate the two. Hallelujah. Nobody can qualify for rapture by his works. Works is never sufficient. If that message is preached well, the church, like the early church, will begin to expect his coming. But now we are afraid. Jesus is coming soon. Hey! We should begin to, wow, glory. That's how the, hallelujah. But when we say Jesus is coming soon, that's, hey, hmm. Hey. Yeah, I told a lie yesterday, oh to change hallelujah praise God he's coming for his church it's a victorious church it's a great church hallelujah so the church will come to the measure of the stature of the fullness where the church will walk in love the church becomes effective in service then Christ will have a footstool 
there's coming a sudden awakening of the church. Our heart will be awakened like Enoch to the fatherhood of God. It has not happened before. It has not happened. I've seen glimpses of it. It's going to happen. Hallelujah. Christ will have a foot too. But may we stick to the word and begin to love him because he loves us and wait for his coming. I read a story by Watchmane. He said he met a sister in 1965. The sister was weeping. The woman was weeping. Weeping. And she, she asked, sister, what, 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 what's wrong? Why are you weeping? And the sister said, it's 1965. My Lord has still not come. My Lord has still not come. I miss him dearly. When is he coming? Can you imagine? The woman has waited for the Lord. Uh, the Lord is not coming. So she was she met the woman literally weeping, walking and weeping because the Lord has not come. Wow. This is love. What are you talking about? She will have that crown on that day. This is love. And the thing is that it doesn't matter whether the Lord will come at that time or not. He will have the crown of righteousness. This is love. Oh, I remember. 99, 2000. I was going through some some challenges how I wait I was anticipating Christ's return when the challenges ceased I forgot <laughs> have you realized that when you are in trouble and things are not working difficult oh we love him we wait for his coming but when it stops so always it's like that's why the underground church in China they are really really expecting his coming but it shouldn't be like that yeah. Even when we are being blessed, we should be waiting for his coming. And being in love. Hallelujah. Praise God. The pressures of the world have, have become too much. We need to rise as the sons of God. Manifest our glory. We are called to walk in glory and excellence. Glory is your portion. Praise God. You are not at the mercy of the world. You own the world. You are not at the mercy of government. You are not here to take from the world. You are here to give to the world. Just know who you are. All your life is about him. It's about him. Take your place. Now lift up your voice and begin to pray. Mama Shandi. Debra Shambra no Kanda Rasimbra and the Khan. Shibra Baba Shambra and the Reba Shambanda. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Baba Shambanda. Yelema Shimbra and the must reign till all his enemies be made his footstool just take your place just take your place take your place
take your place. Robobo Shambrande, Kombonde, Shimbrande, Simbande, Yamakate, Borobatai, Shibrate, Mantorote. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can you lift up your hand? Just lift up your hand to the Father. I don't know how many of you are, are desirous for him. Your heart is craving for him. Your heart is craving. You want to walk in love in such fullness the world has never known. You want to reproduce Christ's living practically on earth. To love as he loved. You want to love your enemies. You want to bless those who curse you. You want to live in a realm. Because he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. This is the God realm. This is the highest realm. Mama. You want to be sold out. Loving him. Expecting his coming. Even so. Come Lord Jesus. Even so. Come Lord Jesus. Mama. You want to be instrumental. In the Lord. Getting a footstool. Mama. Mama. Mama, every enemy will be put under our feet in practical living. No more fear of virus. No more fear of death. No more fear of Satan. No more fear of wizard. No more fear of witches. No more depression. No more anxiety. No more virus. No more addiction. The life we have is his life. Is a transcendent life. Mama, 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 step into that realm. Step into that realm. Prophesy yourself into that realm. The plane, the plane, a new zone, a new horizon. It's the love realm. The love realm. Mama. There are people you have to forgive. Just forgive. And every sickness will be gone. There are people you have to let go. Just let go. And every disease will be gone. Just let go. And every disease will be gone. Mare Teshende. Mare Teshende. Mare Teshende. God bless you for listening. Maranatha. The Lord comes.